Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Random History Podcast. Today, I will be focusing on Cardiff Castle. However, I will be focusing more on its modern-day transformation from a castle into a more of a Victorian thing. I will briefly or somewhat cover the early years of it, but my main focus will be on its current existence as more of a mansion slash fancy building than any form of actual, like, uh, how do I say, kind of castle. So I'm going to start off with the basic history of Cardiff Castle. For those who do not know what it is, it is a medieval castle slash Victorian Gothic revival mansion. This is basically a form of an architectural movement in England, like the late, starting in the late 1740s in England that basically brought back or kind of tried to bring back a series of different, or revive Gothic architecture. So, like, kind of decorative patterns, certain window, like the lancet windows, like the tall, narrow windows with arches at the top. Various designs basically were brought back. It was also very Victorian design, which was also another revival that kind of emphasized various different aspects, which I find very interesting to see kind of how, like, it went from one thing to another, and it in of itself is a very good example of various aspects of the times that it was involved in. So for the thing to notice that it's actually, it's used as an area, like that various, that like site's use actually dates back to the Roman incursions into Britain. And it's believed that they actually built the first fort there around 55 AD. And it was actually a rectangular structure that was much, much larger than the current site and actually was part of the southern Roman border border in Wales. However, after the border advanced, uh, the modern, like, basically the modern belief of what happened is that basically once the border advanced, this defense was less important, so they managed to, they ended up replacing it with two smaller fortifications on the north side, of, on, like, these two smaller things on the north of the current site. And then later, in the middle of the third century, another fort was built to help combat the pirate Right along the coast, and this forms the basis for the Roman remains still seen here. This was mostly square by design. It would have it would eventually be abandoned, and it wouldn't be until the eleventh century when it would be used again. And it was actually rebuilt or used again around ten eighty one by Normans, who were during that point they were actually expanding and making incursions into s- southern Wales, pushing back like kind of pushing out of what their their original land in England. The thing to know is that it was actually very commonplace for them to make castles and very frequently put them on Roman sites, as well as place as well as creating like these regional lords that kind of brought a very like specific form. And the reason behind them choosing these abandoned fortresses is that it led to considerable savings in manpower, manpower because if you already have these Roman Roman sites, you can use the grounds already somewhat flattened. You already have some like nice. Areas that you can build up off of, which means less work, which is very good for saving people resources. And there's two. the two possible dates are either 1081 by William the Conqueror or 1091 by Robert Fitzhamon. So we don't know exactly when, but it's it was we know that certain people know with certainty that it was definitely after 1081. And it used what is called a modern bailey design, which is... Basically, a castle that has a wooden stone key that's raised on a raised area of ground as the Mott, surrounded by a walled courtyard or bailey with a ditch and palisade. 
very easy to make and also very formidable. Basically, you got this raised chunk of land with your castle on it and some fences around that to keep people off. Very popular, very easy to build, just very well used. The thing is that the Normans actually used the basis of the old Roman walls as the uh, kind of the outer perimeters. They ended up digging a defensive tra- trench and throwing up this a 27-foot high bench of earth. And they would further develop it to form both inner and outer bay leaves. And they actually started off with a wooden keep that was only around 40 feet. That was, that was on a 40-foot tall mott. Thing to note, they were also very close to the local mill, which is a very useful structure at the time because mills are how you get wheat and other resources. From the, During the 12th to 14th, they would switch hands quite often from group to group. However, it would be expanded further in the following centuries, and they'd go from the wooden structure to a shell keep, which is basically when a when you have a stone st- structure that circles the top of the mountain. It's very often considered to be the successor to the modern Bailey castles. In the English castle-like history, it went in the modern Bailey, then the shell keep, because it was more stone-based and just stronger. Eventually, it would be attacked by the Welsh, and there would be a series of conflicts and, and confusing inheritances, which I'm not in like transfers, which I'm not going to go into on Titalin. As honestly, this could probably fill the entire book. They could probably, could probably write two or three books on this and still have more stuff to write about its history. There's just a series of different wars and deaths. But eventually, the dispen- a group known as the Dispensers ended up getting the castle and kind of winning it. And they would continue to use it as their main area. However, eventually, one of their one of their leaders, di- one of their major members, died. And soon enough, another man, another family would through more inheritance. Someone, another family known as the, I believe it's pronounced the Buchamp family, would inherit it, and they would add more stuff, new towers, expanding the defenses. In addition to this, they also added a much larger range of this areas to like put stuff in and to have towers and places so basically it went a lot of expansion they also ended up putting in an octagonal tower which is something that is very rare to have in this part of europe he would also ended up adding a new bridge over the river and just a series of other things it continued to transfer from hand to hand and would eventually move further to into the 1500s where it was eventually transferred to the somerset family who then and then later, William the William Herbert bought it, bought it and added some more stuff, and then later during the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, it was used during part of the civil war between. It was kind of involved in the civil war between the royalist supporters of King Charles the First and the Parliament, as it was used as a kind of a stronghold and was captured several times by both of the forces in a conflict during the the war. And actually suffered a fire that saw some good strong a large amount of destruction to the building. It was not destroyed, however, and it luckily escaped a thing known as sliding or the sliding, which was kind of this period in which people would deliberately damage or destroy high status buildings or kind of these castles and very important buildings as a way to basically control people or kind of basically break it. So think of it like this, you got all these fortresses, you're afraid of them, you break them down, most people can, harder for people to defend themselves, kind of unite people together. Kind of hard to explain exactly how it works, but it did work. 
later on, after another series of confusing inheritance transfers, the Stewart family would take it, and leave, aka Lord Mount Stewart would purchase or kind of own the property, get the property, and he would begin to... He would begin to, and about 10 years after he acquired it, he would begin to sort of renovate it to make it a house for his son. They would destroy significant portions and flatten it. They would demolish many buildings. In addition to this, they added several new wings to it. and No, two, not several, two new wings and removed many old features from it. They actually ended up removing a lot of the ivy and just kind of the plants and stuff that were there and adding in spiral path and filling in both the moat and adding in several other buildings. Later, the son would, the Lord's son would die, and eventually his, the grandson, his grandson, sorry, John would inherit both the title and the castle. He, of course, inherited the title of Marquess, and in 1825, he would begin a series of investments in what is known as the Cardiff Docks, which was this very expensive program of work that was quite successful, as it led to Cardiff becoming a major exporting location, or kind of exporting port for the coal in that area. Any of this actually ended up making the family quite rich and very wealthy, and they would eventually own around 22,000 acres, which, for those who don't know, that is an absolutely massive amount of land. And then the second Marquess actually barely visited the castle, and he preferred to live on an island in Scotland. So it was very kind of like low in people. However, later on, during a series of protests, he ended up using he ended up using it as a base of operations to kind of keep things going. Later on, another John, the third Marquess of Butte, would inherit the title. And at this point, he was only he was less than a year old. And as he grew up, he actually came to resent the castle. He's not necessarily resent, but he kind of came to dislike or even despise it. It's basically what we know now is that he kind of thought this was like a poor or not even like a kind of failing of this not very good representation or example of the gothic style he ended up engaging an architect known as william burgess to help undertake this remodeling of the castle into a way he wanted it a thing to note the reason behind this is both of them shared a passion in what is known as the medieval gothic revivalism which i told you earlier was basically this thing of kind of bringing back all this gothic architectural styles and basically combining this passion with the massive resources led Burgess rebuild this building on a massive scale. He ended up gathering his entire team, or like a very, almost all of the team that he'd used on earlier processes and projects. And it's actually his contribution, in particular, his like research and his ideas are responsible for base or kind of very critical for the transformation and just the construction as it was. The first thing he did, or the first thing they began to do was build a 150 foot tall clock tower this was built in a significant this was a signature stone and built in a certain type of stone known as the forest of dean ashlar stone this was kind of a stone that the man liked i actually learned that today while researching it i did not know that before it's just an interesting little fact and it's a stone that he often used in his projects and this tower ended up forming a suite of bachelor rooms like basically a traditional a summer one winter smoking rooms, a room for his servant to be, and a bachelor a bachelor room, which was actually quite extravagantly decorated as the man was only twenty years old at the time and he was ended up having this very extravagant 
building. Interesting thing interesting thing to notice that actually on the outside the clock tower was a reworking of a design that Burgess had previously used in an attempt or like he hasn't actually built it but he in he kind of entered into a entry into like a basically a way to build like a contract to build something and this failed design would end up being re or at least somewhat reborn in this new castle. On the inside, there was covered with gildings of salt of gold, carvings, cartoons, like various allegories and stories, and just various forms. And think knows that the summer smoking room was actually two stories tall and had an internal balcony that had an unbroken band of windows, giving a view of the Cardiff docks and various other things. And the floor of this area had a map of the entire of the world as it was known in mosaic. And later on, they built a series of other rooms in this areas, which I will cover near the end of this podcast. And it's various other things. And they would continue to build and build until Burgess would pass away, and they would even continue it afterwards. Thing to note is that Burgess was actually... He was not buried in here, but his initials and... And the room where he was working on when he died is that his initials and other... And Butte initials were both placed on the fireplace as a memorial, which I think is quite cool. And they would, and actually, this is very well praised. Praised, sorry. At least Burgess's interiors are very well praised by many historians, and they're often viewed as a one of the most magnificent aspects, or one of the most magnificent, basically, achievements or accomplishments of the Gothic revival, and just various other like fantasy like. People often say this is kind of the example of, like, the fantasy-like castles or this fancy place. This is kind of, like, a very good example of that type of ideal. However, on the outside of it, it was often criticized by people just because of the way it was made. They would continue to build and kind of carry out work. And eventually, they would actually, just, they would actually end up finding the remains of the old Roman fort once again. They would do some archaeology, and they would actually end up rebuilding some new walls in a Roman style on the foundation of the original Roman walls, in addition to reconstructing the North Gate and some other areas that they would end up reconstructing, and then end up actually replanting things and returning plants back to the ground. And for a while, it would be open to the public, then it would be closed once again. And eventually... The fourth Marquess, also named John, would inherit the castle, and soon enough, a, lot, a large portion of the assets would lose value, and they would kind of just, like, collapse over time. They would continue to redesign it, however, eventually, they did not do as much this time. But during World War II, during the First World War, it was not really, like, involved in anything. However, interestingly enough, during the Second World War, it served as air raid shelters, and they also ended up adding bar- barrage balloons above the city, which are basically these balloons making it harder for aircraft to approach it. And eventually, the 5th Marquess had a huge issue with what is known as what we call death duties, which is basically another word for inheritance taxes, as he did not have the funds. He ended up selling all the land and the castle itself to the city on the behalf of the Cardiff people. And now it is one of the tourist sites and one of the most populous sites in the entire city, which is very interesting. And they actually did... Once have a college of drama there, and they've had other things, and just various area buildings there. So now I'm going to do a real quick kind of once over of the various facets. So an interesting thing to know is that there's actually 
the gatehouse is actually the separate buildings and they end up adding in a walk wooden covered walkway that would lead from the apartments of the marquess aka his bachelor pad to the gatehouse another thing to note is that the clock face had a it was actually covered in gold leaf and had statues representing the entire solar system as it was known mercury the moon mars jupiter saturn venus and the sun they actually added several of the siege defenses that were traditionally seen in the medieval period such as material i believe it's i can never i can never pronounce this one way i believe it's pronounced Matsikolations, which is basically these slits in which you can pour boiling oil onto attackers. However, they built them only for decoration, oddly enough. In addition to this, they would actually add something known as the Herbert Tower. However, this was actually added before Burgess came along during the 1500s. And it now contains the Arab Room, which was basically this kind of this room with a very Moorish style ceiling. Kind of a very, like, out-of-place thing in the period and in this Britain at the time in general. Then they have the octagon tower with a spiral staircase, which is built in the Central European style, which, interestingly enough, is very rarely seen in British castles. In addition to this, they have a massive library full of just various materials and various books and many decorations in a banqueting hall that shows the lord who ended up building the Norman keep in it. And nothing to note, they actually ended up building an entire other castle from scratch in a place north of Cardiff called, I believe it's pronounced Tonglice. I cannot pronounce the Welsh, so I'm going to go with Tonglice, but that is probably not correct. They ended up building another castle here, or technically rebuilding a castle that wasn't really rebuilt. And interesting enough is that this area matches Cardiff Castle quite really well, and it's actually been used for various things TV series such as Marlin, Doctor Who, and other things that allowed people to basically pretend like. Looked like they were filming from Cardiff Castle without actually having to film there, which is probably beneficial, as it basically lets them film in a way that it is less threatening to the castle, which is interesting enough, is that... So sometimes when you think you see this in a TV show, it actually might be filmed at another castle. This castle has also been mocked by some people, and it's been, it's been liked by some and mocked by others, because some people it's this kind of sham building that's super unrealistic and just super expensive. And now I'm going to do a real quick thing to talk about it. And interesting enough is that despite kind of being this like kind of idealized version of a castle today, it had a very bloody history as both a prison and execution site for various areas. That is all for now, folks. Actually, you know, one quick thing is kind of talk about it, why I think I like it so much. I just like kind of how it's like, in addition to being such a historically significant site, it displays so many different kind of examples of different cultures and just different things that kind of let you understand history in a different way that than people traditionally do and it's just kind of a cool way to see how like different influences can build on each other and make very cool things thanks for listening everyone and once again this is the random history podcast join me after this from machu picchu